I'm grateful for the privilege of sharing in this worship experience today. Thankful to Dean Powery and to Reverend Puckett and Dr. Gregg uh, for invitation and hospitality. Our message today invites us to gather around the idea of looking toward light and life during Lent. Christians remember the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus in a variety of ways. Some traditions emphasize Crucifixion Friday and Resurrection Sunday without much attention to the days and weeks ahead. Others primarily highlight Holy Week that begins with Palm Sunday. Others, however, begin 40 days earlier with Ash Wednesday and the Lenten season. Just as there is variety in Christian traditions about engaging the days and weeks that lead to remembering and rejoicing that God raised Jesus from the dead, taking the sting out of death and victory out of the grave. There is diversity in the ways that we participate in the season of Lent. According to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, during Lent, we seek the Lord in prayer by reading sacred scripture. We serve by giving alms, and we practice self-control through fasting. We are called not only to abstain from luxuries during Lent, but to a true inner conversion of the heart as we seek to follow Christ's will more faithfully. We recall the waters of baptism in which we were also baptized into Christ's death, died to sin and evil, and began new life in Christ. Bishop Hope Morgan Ward of the North Carolina Annual Conference noted that during Lent in 2021, the Council of Bishops of the United Methodist Church are offering a Lenten devotion series on dismantling racism in the hope that the church can engage in honest reflection about the realities of racism, colonialism, and tribalism. All of these sins persist in the church, our local communities, and the world. Lent is the time to humbly acknowledge this reality, to pray, to learn, and ultimately work to reshape our world as it is in heaven. However you find yourself joining the journey of Christians around the world during Lent, perhaps through praying, serving, and giving, I encourage you today intentionally to direct your gaze, focus your eyes, and center your attention 
on looking toward light and life during Lent. I seem to notice more people walking during these lengthening days of spring. Perhaps this is because the weather is a bit warmer. Maybe this is true because of more daylight in the afternoon. It is conceivable that people are feeling a combination of warmer weather, more daylight, and the need to move about a little more because of our year-long season of social distancing in order to help reduce COVID-19 infections. For whatever combination of reasons, people seem to be walking a little more these days. I like to look around when I take walks. I have noticed more sense of grilled food, budding life in the daffodils, more squirrels darting through the grass, and more woodpeckers tapping their beaks on the trees. I am able to take in these smells and sights and sounds because I'm not focused in any particular direction. I'm getting exercise and enjoying being outside, outside of my house where I both live and work. Looking around is a luxury when you are not in a moment of urgency. But when life and death are at stake, one does not have the leisure to aimlessly gaze. When life and death are at stake, one must pay close attention because there is too much at risk. Today, because of the unambiguous and decisive choice in your hands, literally life and death, I urge you not to look without purpose but to focus your attention and concentrate your energies on looking toward light and life during Lent. When we join the conversation in our gospel text today, we overhear Jesus talking with Nicodemus, someone well-versed in the things of his faith. He visits Jesus one night and notes his awareness that Jesus must be a teacher sent from God because of the various signs that Jesus is doing. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again in order to see and witness the reign of God. Nicodemus responds, with a rhetorical question of whether an old man can re-enter his mother's womb to be born again. They engage in a short conversation about the need to be born of water and of the Spirit of God. This leads Jesus to a reference about a well-known story in Israel's history about which Nicodemus would have been acquainted. We find in the account of Numbers chapter 21, read for us earlier, 
It tells of God's response to the grumbling of Israel by sending serpents upon them, resulting in the death of many who were bitten. But God also provides a pathway, a way of recovery and good health. They must only obey. Lifting the serpent in the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is a symbol of the lifting of Jesus on the cross in his soon coming crucifixion. The business of the crucifixion of Jesus and its connection to God's redemption of the world does not make sense to many people today. They cannot understand or accept that the execution of an innocent human in some way relates to the heart of a loving God. Some choose to reject the witness of the Christian faith because it does not make sense to their enlightened minds or their postmodern sensibilities, because they cannot capture it in a formula, explain it in a philosophy, or conceive it in their conceptual frame they reject it as not true. Mystery, however, is not manageable, and divine, the divine cannot be domesticated. The fact that one may not be able to capture the contours of God is irrelevant to its truth. First Corinthians chapter one teaches us, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. You see, many humans have a high confidence in our capacity to grasp reality with certainty. We make bold claims with confidence and with volume, as if the fact that we speak with certainty and with volume ensures that we are dealing with reality. This is true with people who seek to simplify the complexities of life as well as those who seek to make the mundane mystical. 
whether politicians who pander to popular populism or preachers who regale with rhetoric or academics enthralled by alleged erudition, many people seek to assert their assurances as well as obscure their ambiguities by claiming to have understood things too large for them to fully comprehend. We think we can grab the things of God when in truth, God must give them to us if we have any hope to understand. We think that we can discover when really what happens is God's disclosure. Hence the heavenly reality and earthly analogy come together perfectly in Jesus. Christ Jesus is crucial and Lent is vital. John in our text makes a comparison that just as God instructed Moses to elevate a bronze serpent on a pole that would save the lives of all who looked upon it, Jesus would be lifted up for all to look to him in belief and be saved from death. He refers to the coming crucifixion of Jesus. And this crucifixion was a conspiracy between the religious elite and the political empire that would result in the execution, the state-sponsored murder, the lynching of Christ Jesus. He would be lifted up on the cross as a public display of violence to instill terror in the hearts of any who would dare pledge allegiance to God above any religion or state or personality. Jesus was murdered by collusion between religious and political power because he would not turn his back on God who made heaven and earth, who created humanity in his image, and who demands that all have enough and none have too much. This God has the audacity to love all people prior to and irrespective whether they love God back. Power-hungry people would murder Jesus by lifting him up on a cross, the instrument of capital punishment in the Roman world. There are human realities, but human actions and ideas are not ultimate. In the words of Charles Albert Tinley, there is a God who rules above with a hand of power and a heart of love. Regardless the immorality and incompetence of human leaders and political powers, God can and does transform human actions into something else. While humans lift Jesus, God exalts Jesus. In the hymn of Johnson Oatman, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all of them unto me. 
It turns out, because of the strong hand of God, that the crucifixion, by a, a miracle of God, is not the end for Jesus, but an opening of God's life-giving purpose for the hope and the healing of the world. Verses 16 through 18 of John 3 are strongly Christological. Everything relies on God revealing the extent of God's love. In this way, God loves the world. The life of Jesus is a gift of God and an act of God's grace. It is the initiative of God. God lavishes love on the entire world rather than only on those who self-identify as God's people. This extravagant love is extended to those who do not and will not and even possibly cannot love God in return. This unrestrained love brings light and life to save us from our perverse love of darkness. That God loves the world means that God loves all people. The expansiveness of God's love illuminates the absurdity and, yes, the sinfulness of racism, classism, sexism, and homophobism for people who claim to love God in response to God's love for them. God loves all people. And if you love God, you must not claim the inherent superiority of people socially categorized as white and the innate inferiority of people who are not identified in the social construction of whiteness, whether they are regarded as black or brown or indigenous or people of color. If you love God, you must not steal wages and extract resources that make people poor. Poverty, you see, is a sentence to premature death, and Jesus came that people might have life. If you love God, you must not presume the supremacy of maleness over femaleness, and you must not subject women to less pay and more work and sexual exploitation and gender-based violence. If you love God, you must not demonize people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer and or questioning, intersex and asexual, non-binary and non-conforming to gender norms. Regardless of your conformity to gender norms, you are not whole without God. All of us are broken. And in the words of Andre Crouch of blessed memory, the potter saw a vessel that was broken by the wind and rain, but he sought with so much compassion to make it over again. 
Oh, I was that vessel that no one thought was good. I cried, Lord, you're the potter and I am the clay. Make me over again today. Then God picked up the pieces of my broken heart that day and he made me a new vessel and revived my soul again. All of us need the love of Jesus to make us new vessels in which God can entrust the treasures of God's spirit. This is extravagant, generous, and abundant love. This is a liberal love that reaches so wide and so deep, it even reaches you and me. While those verses are Christological verses 19 through 21 are strongly ethical. In William Hull's words, everything hinges on one's deeds or whether one does what is true and so comes to the light. This paragraph therefore contends for the unity of theology and morality in Christ by representing Christ as the key both to God's action in conversation and to a person's reaction in conduct. God gives love and people decide what to do with God's love. Judgment is not an arbitrary act of God, but it is the consequence of human decision. We choose to love darkness or love light. We choose to do what is evil or do what is true. The choice is ours. The invitation remains. Verse 21 says, those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. The work of God's love is not death. The purpose of God's light is to illumine truth, not obscure it. To hate the light in this sense is not merely an internal emotional hostility. It is an external distancing from an indifference to the light. Marianne May Thompson explains it this way. The picture of people hiding under cover of darkness serves as a parable of those who do not wish to be exposed to the light. The analogy is natural enough. Darkness hides, light reveals, and those who have something to hide Seek the darkness, not the light. While those who have nothing to hide gladly come to the light. The irony is that while people fear coming into the light, afraid that the exposure of their deeds brings judgment and condemnation, it is there that they find salvation and life. 
God has not sent the Son to condemn, but to save the world. For in him there is light in the darkness and life in the midst of death. So may you look toward light and life during Lent. Everything is at stake. God has extended extravagant love. It is your choice how to respond. In the name of the Sovereign and the Savior and the Spirit, Amen.